Soup from Shoharel Christian uh, Jewish Ministries. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm glad you have cage-free drummers. That's very important. I hate when I go places and the drummers are locked behind plastic. So these people were trying to be nice to me. They offered me a dog. Um, I've been walking the neighbor's dog, but they wanted me to have my own. And they said, hey, it's a Baptist dog. I said, it's a Baptist dog? What makes it a Baptist dog? He says, well, give it any scripture verse. He'll look it up. I thought I'd be easy on him. I said, John 3.16. Dog goes over to the Bible, flips the pages, stops on John 3.16. I'm like, wow, that's great. What else did you do? Well, tell him to pray. I said, pray. He crossed his little paws, bowed his head. He was praying. I said, that's great. Does he do regular things like sit and stay? Sure. Ask him. So I put him in a sit. He sat. I said, stay. He stayed. And then I wanted him to walk with me. I said, heal. That sucker jumped up on me, knocked me down, put his paw on my head, started speaking in tongues. I said, this ain't a Baptist dog. This is a Pentecostal dog. (laughs) Y'all don't speak in tongues. (laughs) I'm just saying. I I put on all my Jewish stuff so you wouldn't just see a red-bearded man up here with you guys who have bad sight and think it was just Joel again. (laughs) You know, one small, short, red-bearded man for another. There you go. Well, I want to tell you, thank you for inviting me, but you will not be beating the Methodist to lunch today, just so you know. Uh, Jesus was our Messiah, and there's no question about it. He is our Messiah. And when he came the first time, he fulfilled the three spring festivals, right? When he came the first time, he fulfilled, please work. He was our Passover lamb. He was our lamb. He was slaughtered. He, he was hanging on the cross, dying at the same time that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. He took and became our Passover lamb. And Jesus was our unleavened bread as well, right? Remember that he was without sin, which is what leaven is equated with. And yet he was pierced and striped for our transgressions and sins, just like the matzah. And he also was our first fruits. Jesus was the first one risen incorruptible from the grave, according to Paul in Corinthians. And the Apostle Paul further tells us today that we're in that middle festival called Shavuot. You guys call it Pentecost. But it's the ingathering of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. And Pentecost was initially a, a gathering of the wheat crop. But now it's the ingathering of the Gentiles. Come on. Come on. There. It's the ingathering of the Gentiles. And in the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, Mashiach... Messiah will read. If I talk it funny, it's not a tongue. It's, it's Hebrew. Okay, just so you know. But spiritually, it's the ingathering of you guys, you Gentiles, into the what? Into the root of Abraham. Into the root of Abraham. To make the Jewish people jealous for their Messiah. That's what you're supposed to do. Make us jealous by the love you have for our Messiah. And Jesus is coming back. In the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, Messiah will be back to fulfill the three fall festivals as well. And that very first fall festival is called Yom Teruah. Yom Teruah, Feast of Trumpets. And here's what the Lord says about Yom Teruah. He says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Say to the Israelites on the first day of the seventh month, you have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present an offering to the Lord. Now this is interesting because when God first meets with Moses on Mount Sinai. He announces himself with a trumpet blast. He announces himself with a trumpet. He says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. 
Moses spoke and the voice of God answered. Well, this is why kings like to announce themselves with a trumpet blast. Because the king of kings announces himself with a trumpet blast. And you guys read that verse in 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the loud command, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God. And the dead and Messiah will rise first. And this is the announcement that the king of kings, the Messiah of Israel, has called his people home. This is the rapture, people. This feast of Yom Teruah is the rapture. It's the trumpet call that signals that the believers are going to be called home. So that's how Yom Teruah is manifest, just like Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits were all fulfilled by Jesus. Yom Teruah will be fulfilled by Yeshua when he calls his church home. And throughout Israel's history, you know, the trumpet played a very important part in Israel's history. It was a call to war. It was a call. Go back. Go back. It was a call. It says, when you go into battle in your land against an enemy who's oppressing you, sound blasts on the trumpets. Then you'll be remembered by the Lord your God and rescued from your enemies. But on that final Yom Teruah, when that final trumpet blast sends and the Lord descends down, he's going to gather the faithful to himself and the congregation of believers will be raptured. Now, on the traditional Jewish calendar, the Feast of Trumpets, they call it Rosh Hashanah. Rosh means head, Hashanah means year. They call it the head of the year. And the Jewish people begin what's called the Ten Days of Awe and Repentance. And this is known in Hebrew as Yamim Noraim. Yamim Noraim. And the Jewish understanding is that on Yom Teruah, on the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, whatever you want to call it, God opens the Book of Life on this day. And the Jewish people, because there's no temple and and no sacrifices anymore they have 10 days to commit themselves to prayer charity and good deeds in order to be written in the book of life for just one more year and the jewish people it's a very joyous time there's great expectation they just don't know what to expect but there's a sense of expectation we know it's going to be the rapture but they're they're eating apples and honey they they say happy new year to everybody But it's always tempered by the understanding that just in 10 short days comes the second fall feast, Yom Kippur, the day of judgment and atonement. So this concept of of joy tempered with solemn fear is understandable. There's going to be great joy when Messiah returns for us. (laughs) But for those who already know him and trust in him, that's going to be great. But what about the people who don't know him? Zechariah says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And they'll look at me, the one they have pierced, and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Think about that for a minute. When did we pierce God? When he was on the cross. And don't miss that pronoun change. They'll look at me, the one they have pierced, and mourn for him. Very important when you're witnessing the Jewish people. And, of course, anything coming on the clouds in the term son of man, as we we remember from Bible study this morning, is a Jewish vernacular for deity. That's why when you sing he's coming on the clouds, that's, that's because it's Jewish and it means he's the Messiah, he's God, he's coming. So Jesus returns at the sound of the trumpet to rapture his congregation, and then sometime after the rapture, the tribulation will start. And the tribulation will last seven years. At that time, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus will return to the earth. And that's this judgment of the second fall festival of Yom Kippur. Let's read about Yom Kippur real quick. So it says this. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of the seventh month, 
He always tells us what day to celebrate. We don't ever need to figure it out by ourselves. Every one of God's festival days has a date attached to it. The tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present an offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement when, and don't miss this, atonement is made for you. You can't save yourselves, people. Those who don't deny themselves must be cut off from their people. These are the people who don't believe are going to be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does work on that day. You shall do no work. And this is to be a lasting ordinance through the generations to come wherever you live. So not only does he give us the right day to celebrate, he says, this and all my festival days are lasting ordinances forever. Not just until Messiah comes, but Olam, forever, which means as long as this earth is standing, these festival days should be celebrated. So when Jesus returns, he's going to make atonement for those who trust him and his Messiah. And all the Old Testament saints, the resurrected tribulation saints, and those who survived the great tribulation... Jesus will atone for their sins as well. But Jesus will also judge those who have lived and died and rejected his leadership. Just understand, you are the bride of Messiah. And the bride of Messiah is only from Acts chapter 2 until the rapture. This is the bride of Messiah. John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet. He even says in the scripture he's a friend of the Messiah, not the bride of Messiah. The people coming after the rapture are guests at the banquet as well. You, in that time between Acts chapter 2 and the rapture, are the bride of Messiah. So there's another description of the Day of Atonement as well in Leviticus 16. And it says this. Say it. There you go. Okay. It says, Then Aaron is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meetings. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one is the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen as, uh, by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented live before the Lord and be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as the scapegoat. So what happens is the, the priest takes two identical goats, and you can see the, the casting lots there. One says La Adonai, which means to the Lord, and one says La Azazel, which is the scapegoat. And they would take these two lots and they would cast one on one goat and one on the other. And it was always seen as a good omen if the lot for the Lord came out in the priest's right hand. But then the, 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 the goat that was sacrificed to God would be slaughtered and his blood would be taken into the most holy place. But here's a unique feature of the Day of Atonement. Usually when the priest was about to sacrifice an animal, he'd only place one hand on that animal and, and do a blessing. But on this day... The priest puts both his hands on the head of the scapegoat. And there's a book called the Zohar, which is a Jewish writings book. And it says, it argues that the two-handed intensification is significant because it indicates that the intentional sins are being forgiven. Did you know there was no Old Testament offering for intentional sins? None. You, you, could, you could get an offering for an unintentional sin, but in, if you intended to sin and you sinned, there was no remedy for that. You carried that guilt. You carried that sin, that shame. But on this day, the priest would put both his hands on the scapegoat so that all the intentional sins of Israel would then be placed on the scapegoat. And a uh, scarlet cord was always tied to the goat's uh, horn. And then the Bible says he should be released to the wilderness. But God forbid this goat would come back with all the sins of Israel on it. We couldn't have that happen. 
there any children in here? No, not really. Okay. So, if there's children in here, for the sake of argument, the goat was sent to the farm. But <laughs> the truth is, is that the priest would take the goat and chase him until he, they chased him off a cliff and he would die. He, or he would be pushed over the cliff if he wouldn't go willingly. And each year, that scarlet cord that was tied around the goat's horn always turned white to signify that God had accepted the sacrifice of the scapegoat for the sins of Israel. Now, I want you to think about worship at Herod's temple for a minute here. Because it was empty and incomplete, the presence of the Lord did not fill that temple at the time of Messiah. After all these intricate rituals were followed, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to be confronted by a cold reminder that God's Shekinah glory was no longer there. The visible presence of God that had hovered over the Ark of the Covenant for almost 800 years until the unthinkable happened. Remember Ezekiel? He watched in stunned silence as the glory of the Lord lifted up from above the Ark and began to move from the sacred room. And within a few moments, the Shekinah glory of God had departed the Holy of Holies completely. Ezekiel tells us that then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. See, the exile to Babylon was now upon Israel, and the Ark of the Covenant had been taken with all the holy implements. And all that remained in this sacred chamber, this Holy of Holies, at the time of Jesus was a barren rock about three fingers high, and it was known as the foundation stone. The building today, which stands over the site of the Holy of Holies, where the sacrifices were made and where the place, the very place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, is now called the Dome of the Rock, as Islam has built a giant dome over it and does not allow Jews to enter. So Yom Kippur was the only day in which the I am that I am name of God was ever uttered and only by the high priest. And each time the name of God was uttered, the people would fall on their faces they would just literally say, blessed be his name. The glory of his kingdom is forever and ever. So Yom Kippur is that second fall festival, which Yeshua will come back at, at the time. It's the tribulation and the judgment. But that brings us to the third fall festival, this, this festival of tabernacles, Sukkot. And here's what the Lord says about this. He says, the Lord says to Moses, say to the Israelites on the 15th day of the seventh month. Again, we don't have to guess what day we're going to be worshiping on. The Feast of Tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. In fact, for seven days, you're to present a food offering to the Lord or a, or a burnt offering to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a fire offering to the Lord. What? You just said it was a seven-day festival. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as a sacred assemblage for bringing food offerings to the Lord. And listen to this. The burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the sacrifice and drink offerings required for each day. All right. And then the offerings are in addition to those you have for the Lord's regular Sabbath of your gift, which is whatever you have vowed and your free will offerings. Your crop offerings, your seed offering, your money. Look, I don't want to hear anyone complain about 10%. We had a 33 and a third percent uh, tax on us. So anyway, it says that at the beginning of the 15th day of the seventh month, after you've gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest. And the eighth day, here he goes again with this eighth day. The eighth day is a day of Sabbath rest. 
And he says, on the first day, you're to take branches from the luxuriant trees, from palms and willows and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for every generation to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Now, the original celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is Sukkot, again in Hebrew, was to remind us of the time we spent wandering the desert, you know, with God there with us, dwelling with us. And we lived in those temporary booths. And when God said, move, we all moved and we packed everything up and left. But importantly, it was a time when God dwelled with us. And this festival of Sukkot, this third fall festival, represents the millennial kingdom of God when Jesus will reign from the throne of David for a thousand years. Now think about what happens. On the first day of the festival of Sukkot, we have something called an illumination ceremony. And the priest would take four 50-cubit-high golden candlesticks with four golden bowls into the court of the women. And they would fill these 10-gallon bowls with the purest oil. And the priest, they used to wear pure linen. They would take their old linen garments and use them as the wicks in these golden uh, bowls of oil. And the priest would light, the, the, would light the things. And the light emanating from these candlesticks was so bright there wasn't a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that wasn't lit up. And the people would dance and sing all night while holding flaming torches. The Levites, they played their instruments and spirited instruments, harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, instruments without number according to the rabbis. And the priests would stand on the 15 steps leading from the court of the Israelites down to the court of the women. And they would sing 15 songs of ascent. Psalms 120 through 134. Along with the musical instruments, the Levitical choir stood and chanted and sang all day. People were singing and dancing. This is a very joyous time. And it goes on all night. And as the candlesticks began to pale and the sun began to rise, they were prolonged trumpet blasts. And then the prayer of repentance was recited. This is an elaborate ceremony on the first day with the light representing the Shekinah glory of God that once filled the temple. I mean, certainly we can see this is the fulfillment of Sukkot as a celebration of the Lord's return and reigning from the throne of David for a thousand years. And the celebration of Sukkot continued until the seventh day when the water libation ceremony was held, something called the Great Hosanna, the Great Salvation. So Sukkot is a pilgrimage, a regalim. Do you know what that means? Every male had to go to Jerusalem to make an offering. They had to do it three times a year, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And so there are thousands and thousands and millions of people in Israel at the time of these festivals. And they would all gather together and they would go from the temple down to the pool of Siloam. And they would get the water from the pool and put it into the golden pitchers. And they followed somebody. They followed. This is really interesting. They would follow behind a flute player. You had the flute player. You had the priest from the temple. And then you had the regalim, the the pilgrims. And the flute player had a very interesting name. He was called the pierced one. But they would follow them. They would go back to the temple. They'd pour out the water as a living prayer, saying thanks to God for the spring rains and the fall rains that brought their crops. And the rabbis taught that it was on this day that the gates of judgment, the gates of life and death, were sealed. And those who were denounced and not put in the book of life when it closed at Yom Kippur would now start dying. In fact, it's customary for religious Jews to stay up all night on this night, offering prayer and studying Torah in the chance that they would be added to the book of life. 
Now, the Torah also describes sacrifices for this time. There were 70 oxen that were sacrificed. Anyone know why they had 70? It was to correspond to the number of nations, the number of nations that came out of the sons of Noah. You see, Israel would commit to making a sacrifice for every one of the nations on earth with prayer that they would be living in peace and harmony. In fact, the rabbis, they said, this in Bad Nabar Rabbah 1, it says, If the nations of the world would have known the value of the temple for them, they would have surrounded it with a fortress in order to protect it, for it was of greater value to them than to Israel. Instead, they destroyed it. But we have talked about this festival of Sukkot as a seven-day festival, but what's this mysterious eighth day? Why is there an eighth day that's to be like a Sabbath? Well, in traditional Judaism, the day after Sukkot is called Shemini Atzeret, which literally means the eighth day. <laughs> it's, it's called that in Bible and also in rabbinic literature. And Shemini Atzeret is a day when everyone gathers together in a solemn assembly. And it means like to take back or to hold back. And the Talmud has a story. The Talmud is the writings of the rabbis. It has a story about this. Listen to this story. This explains Shemini Atzeret. It says, A king once gave a feast to which the diplomatic representatives of many nations were invited. When they were ready to depart, the king called aside his son, who was among the guests, and said to him, While all these strangers were around, we hardly had an opportunity to have an intimate conversation. Tarry thou one day longer, and we shall hold a simple feast to ourselves. So God has arranged for the feast of Sukkot with 70 offerings made on behalf of the 70 nations, that at the conclusion of this feast, God begs Israel, his son, to tarry, a czar, one day longer, and they sacrifice one bull and one ram on behalf of Israel. Now, the final celebration of the fall feast in Judaism is called Simchat Torah. Simchat Torah is a celebration of the law. The, the joyfulness of Sukkot is dim compared to the exuberance displayed during Simchat Torah, which means rejoicing in the law. The annual Torah cycle is, we read a portion in the synagogue every week of the Torah. And at the end of the year, you read the last couple uh, verses of Deuteronomy, and then you roll the scroll all the way back, and you read the first part of Genesis, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning, God. So this is a time of great joy. The congregation sings, we take the Torah out, we dance with the Torah. I mean, think about it. The Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh. And we take this law and our congregation on these scrolls and we pass it around for everyone to dance with the Torah. It's just a beautiful time. And they go around the synagogue seven times. And the people who are chosen to recite the part of Deuteronomy, the last part of Deuteronomy, the first part of Genesis, are called the bridegroom of the first portion and the bridegroom of the law. It actually kind of looks like a Jewish wedding ceremony. If you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, you see the bride go around the groom seven times to show completion. And you know what's going to happen, right? We know what really it is when the law is fulfilled. It's because we're going to have a marriage celebration with our Messiah, the bridegroom of all bridegrooms. But the, the grooms here at the Torah portions, are they're attended by groomsmen just like a wedding. There's processions around the synagogue just like at weddings. Um, shofars are blown just like at weddings. So what could Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day, and Simchat Torah, the joy of the law, represent to us as believers in Messiah? Do they have a prophetic meaning like all the other festival days? 
This is why I say you can't get to heaven without going through the synagogue. This is important because I believe they do. When I was, when I was a traditional Jew, I'd beat the synagogue. None of this meant anything to me. I hated the festival days. They were boring. They were like, oh, my gosh, not again. But that's because my people have zeal without knowledge. They have zeal without knowledge. Jewish people don't understand what they're doing. Christians, you would understand it, but you don't do it. And I'm trying to get you to meet in the middle, okay? But look at these festival days. Look, let's go back quickly and look at the festival days. I think all of these have great meaning. And I believe God gave us these rituals that all point to the Messiah for my Jewish people to see him and for you to also celebrate them. Now, we know that at the sound of the trumpet, this festival of Yom Teruah, the Messiah is coming back. But he's not coming to the earth. He only comes on the clouds, which means it's the rapture. We're called up to them. If you don't have a fear of heights, you'll be okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing he's going to make you not have a fear of heights at that time as you're flying into heaven. But we're the bride of Messiah. Okay? And just like the intimate wedding ceremony in a Jewish culture, it's only the immediate family that's at the ceremony. So it's only going to be the us, the bride of Messiah, at this ceremony with our Messiah. Everybody will come to the party afterwards, but it's just going to be us. And then Jesus, so Jesus is going to fulfill the rapture when he's here with Yom Teruah, the fulfilling of the, the day of trumpets. And then we're going to have the day of Yom Kippur, this day of judgment and atonement. And this commemorates and correlates to the judgment, the tribulation, when all will answer before the Lord for what they have done or not done, both Jews and Gentiles. And then comes the resurrection of the dead and their Yom Kippur judgment, as Daniel tells us. Come on, Daniel. There you go. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name was found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we know there's a judgment at the end of the tribulation and at the resurrection of the people. Now, the illumination, the illumination ceremony when Jesus was here, of course, he's the light of the world. So we know that Jesus will be there on the first day of Sukkot because he's going to be the light. And the seven-day festival of Sukkot, we have the water libation ceremony. You remember Jesus talking about that, right? He said, if anyone has thirst, come to me. And then you'll never have thirst again. So we know Jesus is there for the light because he is the light and he's also the living water. So he's at the whole tribulation or the whole millennial with us. But we know that there, before that time, there's going to be a time of great distress called the time of Jacob's trouble. And we read about it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jesus says that the Messiah told of the world these indescribable days of agony and terrible period. If we look at Zechariah, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that two parts will be cut off. Do you understand that two-thirds of the world will die? Two-thirds of people will perish. Some because you're looking at your phones and not caring what's going on up here and not getting proper instruction. Others because you're not really saved. You just think you're saved, but you're not. But understand that from the midst of the great tribulation, the Jewish people will cry out to their God, and in his mercy he will send his Messiah at the last day of the tribulation. And again, they will look at him who they pierced. And John 3.16, Israel will be restored both physically and spiritually. Her enemies will be crushed. Messiah will reign not only 
over Israel, but of all the nations of the world. We have a little song about this. Adonai Malach, Adonai Melech, Adonai Imloch, Le'olam Vayed. You'll never get that out of your head now. (laughs) But we sing that a lot during the High Holy Days. But he's going to be Lord over all the earth, over all the earth, according to Zechariah, not just Israel. And you know the best part about the Millennial Kingdom? What happens during the Millennial Kingdom? Well, Satan's locked up. It says in, in Revelation 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient servant, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Again, I don't know why God has his plan like this, but this is God's plan. So think about it. We're in the millennial kingdom for how long? A thousand years. Where's Satan during this time? In the abyss. He's locked up. So at the end of the tribulation, Satan will be locked up, and we will have a joyous time of living with our Messiah in the millennial kingdom. I mean, that's going to be a great time. But at the end of the festival of Sukkot, the seven days, right, where Jesus is enthroned, look what happens. Lord? No, we have to know what happened. I didn't turn it off. There we go. So it says in Revelation 7, 17, For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. See, when Jesus returns, we're finally going to be accepted. Well, one-third of the... Think about it. There's 300, 300 million people in the U.S. 200 million will perish. I want you to think about that. 200 million just here will perish. But for those who survive the tribulation, that's when Romans 11:26 comes into completion and God will restore all the Jews who survived the tribulation. All Israel will be saved at that time, finally taking the living water of their Messiah. Now, what about this crazy eighth day that God talks about but never tells us anything else about? And again, we celebrate the eighth day in the synagogue. What could it mean? What is happening on that day? Well, you know, the number seven in Judaism, it represents completion, perfection in God's economy. So to get to the eighth day, you have to go to spiritual. And this eighth day, this Shemini Atzeret, is a solemn day. What would be said? We're living in the millennial kingdom with Jesus, on the throne, reigning. There's justice and righteousness everywhere. Why would we have a day where we're sad after the thousand years? Well, beloved, that's when Satan is released from the abyss. Satan is released from the abyss, and we make one more sacrifice in the millennial temple. One ram and one bull. But this has to happen. Remember, after great joy of Sukkot comes that sad, solemn day. And I think this is what Shemini Atzeret, that eighth day, that solemn convocation is representing. Because look at Revelation 20, verse 7. It says, when the thousand years has ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That's China and Russia, by the way. And are they getting more powerful today? We're ever closer to our Lord. In, the, in order for them to battle, they are as numerous as the sands of the sea. I think three billion is kind of numerous in, in China. They march up and over the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Well, clearly, that's all of us living in Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. 
And fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hallelujah. Okay, then there won't be a problem. Now, this makes sense why Shemini Atzeret is a solemn day with an offering. Because God is going to defeat the enemies of us one last time, and then it's going to be a permanent, permanent dwelling with God. Understand this, the completion of the law, Simchat Torah, that means the law is going to be written perfectly in your heart and in your mind, just like it was for Jesus, and you won't be able to sin ever again. I mean, happy, 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 right? And when the end comes, now that was Shemini Atzeret, Satan's been defeated, what happens after that? Well, Revelation tells us what happens after that. I I swear it does. It really does. There you go. All right. So here's that Simchat Torah, the wedding feast kind of feeling. It's a time when we'll be living with the word of God perfectly. And Jesus, just as Jesus did, we won't be able to sin anymore. The the word of God will be perfectly written in our minds and in our hearts. And Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What's better than living in the millennial kingdom with Jesus? Living in the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem with the entire Godhead. Okay? The full Trinity will be there in heaven with us. It's a place, listen to this, there's no more sickness, there's no more suffering, there's no more pain. This is confirmed in Isaiah. He tells us, the former things of the old heaven and earth have passed away and will not even be remembered. You're not going to remember people that didn't make it to heaven. You're not going to remember everything sad. And by the way, your mom is not watching you. Your grandmother's not watching you from heaven. Because if they were, they'd be sad. And there's no sadness in heaven. So no, no one's watching you from heaven. You're on your own and you've got God's angels, but it's not your mama. Okay. But think about that. No more death, no more dying, no more crying. For the old order has passed away. And only those written where? Oh, in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb's book of life, the new heaven and the new earth, we get our glorified bodies, the old order of things has passed away. We need our, our glorified bodies to enter the, the, the kingdom of God. We can't go into the new heaven, otherwise we defile it with our old bodies. So Simchat Torah is the law now being completely fulfilled in us as it was in Messiah. No more sin. Joy, joy, joy. We have our glorified bodies. We have an eternal place in heaven. The place that Jesus prepared for us back in John 14, right? Joy, joy, joy. And we will finally be living not only with Jesus in the millennial kingdom, but with the entire Godhead in heaven forever. Hallelujah. Do you want to know where you're going to be living? You're going to be living in a place that people on earth fight over stuff. So here's what it says. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. People are killing to get what you're going to get in heaven for free. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jasson. I don't even know what jasson is. Anyone know what jasson is? It's probably beautiful. And the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. And the great street of the city was gold as pure as transparent glass. 
And I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. You better believe me. Don't make me use my rabbi voice. But I want you to understand something. All of these things come together. All of these things come together for the glory of God. Now, here's the problem. Two-thirds perish. Two-thirds perish. Do you understand that on the day of the rapture, churches are going to be full of people that were members? How do you get to heaven? You don't get to heaven if you're a pastor. You don't get to heaven because you teach Bible study. You don't get to heaven because you come to church every week. You don't get to heaven because you put millions of dollars in the offering plate. You can't buy God. You don't get to heaven because your mama sings in the choir. Look, the only way to get to heaven is to have an authentic, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only way. But Jesus said, go out and make what? Disciples. Jesus didn't say, go out and make believers. We got plenty of make-believers in the church. And on the day of the rapture, the churches will be full of church members who thought they had salvation. What did God say in Jeremiah 31? He says, a new covenant I give to you. I, God, will write my word, just like he took his finger and wrote the, on the tablets he gave to Moses. I will write my word in your mind and in your heart. Beloved, this is knowledge. I can give you knowledge. This is salvation. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I am he who searches what? Hearts and minds. He's looking for the word of God written in both places according to the new covenant of Jeremiah. And if you only have knowledge, you have not salvation. If you have salvation, you have knowledge and you have a circumcised heart. I can attest to this because for many years, I was a religious person and not a believer. I worked in my own strength to be good. None of that will bring salvation. The only way to heaven is through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through me. Jews, Gentiles, it doesn't matter. You must come through the Messiah. So how many in here today have been playing church instead of truly worshiping God? How many of you know the Word of God here but don't have it inscribed on your heart? Beloved, if you can sin, and it doesn't, it doesn't rip your heart out of your chest to, to lie, cheat, steal, fornicate, adulterate, whatever you're doing. If it doesn't break your heart, rip your heart from your chest, you're not saved. If I even look at something and think about taking it that's not mine, I'm, I'm like embarrassed before the Lord. But it wasn't always like that. I had a time when I was religious. And we all know religious people, Right? Oh, they can quote scripture and they give you all the platitudes. I'm just a beggar looking for bread. But how many have that true, authentic, personal relationship with their Messiah? Guys, I don't want anyone in here to leave today until they know that blessed assurance of salvation. Because when that trumpet sounds, you will be left behind. The dead in Christ will rise. Those of us who believe will be called into the air with him. You will be left behind. If you don't have that real authentic relationship with your Messiah. Because as great as Poolsville Baptist Church is, it can't save you. So please, right now, just humor me, close your eyes, bow your heads, and ask the Lord, do I have that authentic relationship with you, Father? Do I know your Son? Do I trust Him for my salvation? Is my relationship with Jesus real? Have I been playing church or do I know the Lord personally? 
Because, Father, when that shofar, when that trumpet blasts, I want to be called into the clouds with you, not left behind to face the tribulation. Because if you don't like COVID, you're not going to like the tribulation at all. Beloved, if that sound scared you even a little bit, you need to talk to somebody about your relationship with Jesus. If that could have been the archangel blowing that trumpet with the shout of the Lord, and you're not ready to face that, you need to have a conversation with me, with one of your leaders, but you need to have a conversation. Because when the trumpet sounds, you will be left behind if you've been playing church, if you thought you could get to heaven on your own, if you thought you could be a good person in your own strength, you cannot. And it doesn't matter how good you are. You know how many scriptures say good people go to heaven? Zero. It's not about being good. It's about being saved. So if there's anybody who wants to come and wants me to pray with them, look, I don't work here. You can tell me anything. It doesn't get back to Joel. You got anything to confess? This is the day. But I give you this opportunity to come forward. Uh, Musicians, you guys come back up and play. And if anybody, I'm going to turn off my microphone and come down there. And please, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Because they don't know. You could be asking for prayer for your children. You could be asking for prayer for someone who's dying. They don't know what you're coming up to pray about. But if you have a prayer need, now's the time to come and to get that prayer. If you have to confess something, now's the time to come. Come up and play, guys. Come on. Come up and, 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 and come forward. Don't worry about what the person in the pew next to you is thinking. Don't worry, because you know what? They're not going to be able to save you. And if you're embarrassed now, wait till you get before Jesus. If you're too ashamed to come up front today for prayer, don't think you're gonna, it's going to be any easier in front of Jesus, because it won't. So I'm going to put my shofar down, and I'm going to come forward here. I'm going to turn off my mic, and if anybody would like prayer, please come forward at this time.